Romans 13 begins with some clear and simple instruction. Let's take in together the opening seven verses by way of context. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, because, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear over the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Gracious Father, we stand here uh, in honor symbolically of the word of God, your word. But we also stand rightly in awe of the word of God. We stand in awe of the word because they are directly from you. Therefore, they are perfect. We read in Hebrews that they are powerful. We read in 1 Timothy that they are without error and good for us, able to build us up. And we read in Peter that there is nothing that we will encounter in this life that your word does not speak to, for in it is found all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so this morning we stand in honor of your word and in awe of your word. May we humbly sit at uh, the feet of our teacher, not a man, uh, but the Holy Spirit, who teaches us, especially, clearly, when we open (laughs) your word. May you make us like you, teach us, give us insight and humility. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Allow me to start by saying I'm grateful to be back in the book of Romans. Um, this is, for those of you who have not been here uh, for the entire gener- uh, journey, this is sermon number 44 in our journey through Paul's epistle to the church in Rome. Um, I'm grateful to be back here because I love verse-by-verse expositional preaching and teaching. I love to listen to it. I love to observe the effect that expositional preaching has on the lives of the saints, and I love to do it, um, verse by verse, expositional preaching. It's a, it's a, a comfort zone for me, if you will. Um, from it, we recognize a few things. Um, what the text says is the sermon, right? So no funny business, no monkey business, no clever ideas. Uh, it matters not who stands in this place. What matters is the text to which we look. And so from the text, we derive the sermon, and so it puts me at ease, right? Romans 13, then, comes on the heels of a mountain of 
doctrinal teaching. A mountain. I'm talking about chapters 1 through 11, the likes of which I could not possibly summarize by way of introduction. If you've not been with us on the journey from the word go, from chapter 1, verse 1, I encourage you to do your best to scroll back through our Facebook feed and listen to those messages. Um, Catch up as best as you can. At minimum, reread it afresh, maybe each week, the whole book, in order to catch up with the rest of us who have been looking at this for the better part of a year. We will um, reestablish the context of Romans 13 little by little along the way, just to refresh our minds. To do so first, I'll simply say this briefly. Paul begins the letter with a series of doctrines. Who God is, who man is, and how man can be reconciled to God by grace. That's chapters 1 through 11, okay? Then in chapter 12, Paul shifts to, okay, now here is how to live this out. Here's this mountain of doctrinal teaching. Here's how to live it practically, beginning in chapter 12. In verse 1, a most wonderful verse in all of the Bible, I present my body as a living sacrifice. Okay? Paul's opening instruction then, as we turn to chapter 13, on submission to governing authorities is part of what you might call the Christian living section of the epistle. You know, that part of the Christian bookstore that's like, you know, hits and misses? You know what I mean? Like, ooh, there's a good one. Ooh, there's a heretic. Ooh, there's a good one. Right? Only uh, all of Paul's, you know, material is, of course, inspired and good. So if you will, without further delay, let's dive right in. Number one, if you're taking notes, governmental submission is a general principle. And so let's consider governmental submission then as a general principle. We need look no further than the first two words of this chapter. Uh, In Depending on your translation, it might say, let all men, or in the ESV, let every person. The point there is that the instruction that will follow is applied to every human being. Not only Christians, but of course, certainly Christians are included. Let every person, if you will, under the sun, every man or woman or child, recognize this universal principle from God. It is offered to all men. Let us recognize submission to authority is a bedrock of the Judeo-Christian worldview. God instituted first the family with a father and a mother, disciplinarians unto the children. They are to teach the naturally rebellious child to put his or her sinful impulses under the authority of their parents. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen is a parent's favorite verse. Any parents want to quote it real quick? No, no brave volunteers? Rebellion is bound where? That's all you needed. But the what? Hallelujah, right? <laughs> The rod of correction. Rebellion is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. I swear it was my dad's favorite verse anyway (laughs) when I was growing up. Now, this is good, okay? This is good and failure to do so. Failure to use the rod to drive the rebellion, to bring the sinful impulse under the authority of the parents has negative consequences. Let's start with the good. It's good because once a child learns to submit his will to his earthly father, look, it's a natural progression to place his will under the authority of his heavenly father. So this is good. It's a gift. 
moms and dads, in the discipline of our children and the curbing of their sinful appetites, we are teaching our children what it means to be a Christian when we submit or when we insist they submit to our authority. What does it mean to be a Christian? I am not in charge. God's word and the God of all creation is the governor of my life. It's no different than when you're a child and you have your own sinful impulses and your father and mother are, if you will, the governor of your life, saying where and when and how much and yes and no. I can't tell you how many times a day someone in my house asks for food. We spend more on food than my mortgage every month. And not just food, but cookies. Dad, can I have a cookie? Can we have some cookies? Every meal, can we get two cookies? It's like... We're teaching our children what it means to be a Christian when we insist they submit to our authority. So that's good. We're bringing them to their Heavenly Father in that regard. Conversely, failure to do so under the Old Covenant came with severe consequences. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of this city, our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Proverbs 22, 15. Rebellion is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. It's good, and failure to do so comes with negative consequences. Does that seem harsh? It does to our natural 21st century sensibilities, but the alternative, friends, is what we're living in. Okay? This has two effects, this uh, ancient law code that required the life of an absolutely irredeemably rebellious grown child. Let's understand this would not happen to a nine-year-old. Okay? The context of that is the child is grown. This our son is grown. He is beyond the age of our responsibility. He is under the law of God as himself a man. Okay? But... The effect of this is twofold. Number one, it's practical. It is a deterrent to those who are watching. The very next verse in Deuteronomy says, so that all Israel may hear and fear. Right? You're 10 years old. You're kind of having a rough time with your mom. And then some 20-year-old guy who is a total knucklehead who's a total loser, he's totally rebellious, he's drunk, he always causes trouble, he's the constant source of turmoil in your city, he's brought out to the gate, and the elders of the city publicly execute him. That would make an impression on you. So all Israel may hear and fear. So it's a practical thing, there's the wisdom of God's law there, but it also has a spiritual effect, a practical effect and a spiritual effect. We must recognize that to rebel against your heavenly father is to invite eternal death. To rebel against your physical earthly father under the Mosaic law is to invite physical death. To rebel against your heavenly father is to invite eternal death. So there's a spiritual picture being painted here. You see it? So the stakes, we might say, when it comes to the discipline of our children are high. The stakes of insisting that they learn to submit their will to the authorities God has placed over them, the stakes are high, okay? Now, beyond parents, God gave authority structures to mankind and to his people. We must recognize that governments are a gift ordained by God. 
Al Mohler puts it this way. Anarchy is the farthest thing from God's design for humanity. We need only look to the book of Judges for proof. What's the banner over the book of Judges, Bible students? In those days, there was no what? King in Israel. Everyone did what? What was right in his own eyes. There was no king. Everyone did what they thought, felt, deemed to be right in the moment according to their impulses, according to their desires, according to their own strength, right? And what is the book of Judges? It is bloody, violent, idolatrous, X-rated, rampantly sexual depraved, leading to God's divine discipline over his people, only for them to confess their guilt, repent, and for the cycle to repeat itself over and over again of bloody violence and sexual immorality unto God's judgment for 400 years, longer than America has been a nation, they existed this way. All the while they had the priests, all the while they had God's law, all the while there was the tabernacle with God's presence. Great is thy faithfulness. No kidding, right? Anarchy, subjective morality, zero authority, and the picture of the people, their moral fiber, their quality of life and security, all of it was bleak. This is not what God prescribes for even his fallen creation, okay? Therefore, it's not overstating it to say that God commands all men, including his church, to be subject to to authority. Secondly, on this, we're still on point number one. This is sub-point number two. If you, like, if you like bullets like I do or whatever, 1A was what we just did. We're going into 1B. It is offered without qualification. It's offered to all men, and it's offered without qualification. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, period. No qualification concerning the character, the morals, or the worthiness of that governing authority. Those in power at the time of Paul's writing this letter were terribly immoral. Sexually depraved, idolatrous, immoral to degrees that I cannot describe in this setting because we value the generations together. I can't describe it. You have to go read it. You go read about Emperor Nero and his proclivities. Terribly immoral. The Roman Empire was led by the infamous, as I said, Emperor Nero at the time of this writing, who by best historical evidence would go on to have Peter and Paul both beheaded Interesting. Paul says, let everyone be subject, right, to the governing authorities, including the one who is in power that's going to take my head in 10 years. Interesting irony, isn't it? Early historians Tacitus and Tertullian ascribe to Nero brutal persecution of the Christian community in Rome, and that Nero was essentially the first, he set the precedent for targeting Christians to persecute them. So, I ask you, when Paul writes this, was he saying, submit, let every person be subject to the governing authorities as long as they are good, as long as they are kind, as long as they are moral, as long as they are truthful? No. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, God speaks to the captives, okay? So Israel had been invaded, and they had been taken captive. Thousands of God's people carried away into, at the time, Babylon. And he says to them, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The recipients of this instruction were under the command of an idolatrous pagan king. Not a good king, not a moral king. 
The same king who threw three Jews into a furnace because they would not worship the image that he commanded to be worshipped. Not a good man. Not a moral man. Not a man subject to God. And yet what did Jeremiah write? On behalf of God, God says, thus saith the Lord, seek the welfare of the city. What does that mean? It means work unto the peace and the prosperity and the good. Don't be agitators. King David's a fantastic example of one who, under the fear of God and an intimate relationship with him, would not take the life of King Saul, even though he had many opportunities to do so. In one instance, the story reads that God actually caused a deep sleep to fall on Saul and his bodyguards while they were out pursuing David on trumped-up charges. David snuck into the camp. He was standing there as close as I am to this music stand, and there's the king. David has been anointed by Samuel the prophet. You are the next king of Israel. Saul has been told the kingdom has been ripped from you and been given to another. And David stands there before the man who has run him from his home, taken his wife, threatened his family, chased him for his life. And this is what he says when his, when his bodyguard, when his boy says, now's your chance. This is a spiritual sleep. This is obviously God giving you the opportunity. What did David said? He said this, who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, offered without caveat, without qualification to their moral fiber, their goodness, or their truthfulness. This, of course, is David, the only man in Scripture, said to have a heart like God's. He is a man after my own heart. So, no, Christian, when it comes to Romans 13, verse 1, we are not off the hook if our president is a wicked, greedy, gross, pathological liar. And he is. And I'm not making a joke, and I'm not making a statement It's the truth. As true as John the Baptist spoke to Herod about how it was immoral for him to take his brother's wife to be his own, which caused him to be imprisoned and ultimately beheaded, so too true is the statement. The man who sits at the seat of power, ordained by the God of all creation, by the way, is a wicked, greedy, gross, pathological liar. He is not our moral guide. But he is the president of the United States. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, regardless of character. This is offered to all men. It's offered without caveat. And we see, thirdly, it's offered in concert with the rest of Scripture. C. Offered in... C. Whatever. Offered in concert with the rest of scripture. Let me read a few for you just to get the flavor of this and we'll move on. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, the scribes and Pharisees, now hang on. The scribes and Pharisees, these are the cats who were constantly trying to catch Jesus in a, in a, in a snag. These are the guys who tried to catch Jesus and we'll see later on related to taxes. Do you pay Caesar taxes or do you not pay Caesar taxes? You know what I'm saying? Ugh. These are the guys who John the Baptist called a brood of vipers, who Jesus himself called hypocrites in whitewashed tombs, the scribes and the Pharisees. These are not friends. The scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. They sit on Moses' seat. What does that mean? In the Mosaic law was established the Levitical order. The priests have an authority. In a similar fashion, the way that the elders of the church have an authority over the people. Unto their moral behavior, okay? They sit in that seat. So do 
and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Obey, don't imitate. Right? But that's Jesus. Why? The governing authorities are instituted by God for the good of the people. Acts 23, verses 1 through 5. This is after uh, Paul, uh, his journey to Rome, essentially, this is when he was brought before a council. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Hold on real quick. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying that as far as the law of God was concerned, I lived my whole life seeking to achieve the law of God. And since I realized that the law of God was fulfilled in Christ and that to, in fact, to persecute the the church of Jesus is to be in opposition to God, since that day I repented and now I walk in grace unto a clear conscience. That has been my aim and my objective under the law and under grace. I've lived my whole life before God in good conscience to this day. And the high priest, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is gonna strike you, you whitewashed wall. I can't wait. I hope someday I get to call some wicked, you know, cat a whitewashed wall and and not be sinning when I do it. Ah, the Lord has called only a select few, alas. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, and he was right. Paul was right when he said that. It's true. He was, this high priest was wrong. He didn't understand the gospel. Are you sitting, Paul says, to judge me according to the law, and yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? What does Paul say? I don't care who you are, what position you have, you're wrong, you're a hypocrite. No, this is how Paul responded. He said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Jesus, Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. This is how the church should function. Pray for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Don't just pray. Pray for your kings. Pray for all who are in positions of authority. Well, friends, as all to say, as a, as a general principle, submission to earthly authority is constantly, consistently modeled and prescribed in the scriptures. Now, are there exceptions? You're desperately waiting for me to get to this, right? Are there exceptions? Yes, there are exceptions. But we first must learn the rule before exploring the exceptions. That's how we teach children how to read. Letter P makes the P sound, right? We don't tell them immediately thereafter that if there's an H after it, it makes the sound. We also would not have a good answer for when they ask why. Furthermore, we don't tell them that sometimes the P is completely silent. You don't even pronounce it, like the word pneumonia. We don't have a good answer for that either. Not one that would suffice a four-year-old. Not one that would make sense to an early reader who has to be told P makes the sound P. You start with the rule. You reinforce the rule over and over and over again. Once that is firmly established, then you begin to explore the exceptions. Listen, recognizing that the exceptions are just that, exceptional meaning they are rare, uncommon, and not the norm. So are there exceptions to this general principle? Yeah, but they're rare. They're not common. They're not the norm. And we will explore those next week in part two of this series, okay? 
First, we're going to appreciate the institution. First, we're going to appreciate the principle. We're going to appreciate that God has instituted men to live under authority as a general principle, irrespective of the moral fiber of those authorities. And we are called by God to submit peaceably long before we are called to stand on conscience and refuse. The default position must be cooperation, peace, dignity, submission, prayer, and support. That's the default position. Well, that's number one, governmental submission as a principle. Number two, let's consider governmental submission as unto God. And again, friends, the text writes the sermon. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. There is no authority except from God. So you might say it's on loan. And those that exist have been instituted by God. We'll explore this a little bit. Well, let's just understand this as we begin this, this point here. Uh, friends, there is no power anywhere that does not reflect God's sovereign rule. There is no power anywhere that does not reflect God's sovereign rule. We will not pretend like we can figure out why certain things are so. Wicked school board educational people wicked dictators, murderous emperors. We will not pretend to understand why these are part of God's sovereign rule. But we recognize by the text of Scripture that in fact every one of them, be them good, be them evil, or something in between, they reflect God's sovereign rule. Psalm 62.11 says a very simple phrase that's good for us to recognize Power belongs to God, period. Power belongs to God. It's one of those things that gives the Christian hope and joy in spite of circumstance. Psalm 62.11, power belongs to God. My guy didn't get elected. These school boards are wicked. This new legislation has been passed. I read the news, friends, okay? I'm as informed on most of these things as you, if not more so, to the point that it grieves me so that when I preach, I don't preach, if you will, blindly. So I know, I know what's going on, friends. Power belongs to God. It gives us hope and joy in spite of these circumstances. Now, our fellow conservatives who are not Christians rant and rail about the demise of the nation or the rise of liberal progressivism. What they don't have is the confidence to say with the scriptures, I'm at peace because power belongs to God. All they can do is rant and rave and stress and try to mobilize the population. We can be at peace and pray to the God of all creation who institutes all authority. See the difference? They only see with fleshly eyes. Acts 17, Paul's preaching. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Listen, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You get what Paul is saying here? That over the course of human history, Paul says, 
out of the abundance of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with inerrant language, Paul just said that God determined the times and the places, the people and the empires. All of this is for his glorious purpose. A a remarkably, impossibly complex tapestry that our finite, sinful human brains cannot possibly comprehend even if God tried to explain it to us. So you know what he said? He said, your, your brain would explode if I tried to show you how this all works together in perfect justice. So I'll tell you what, trust me. I mean, I gave you breath to begin with, right? Why are some eyes blue and some eyes green and some eyes brown and some eyes a mixture? Why? God's glory, right? Why does every sunset seem like a new painting for God's glory? Why? I was praying this morning with the team before we rehearsed. Why did God make music? Rhythm and volume, crescendo and harmonies and chords and notes and melodies that rise and fall and they get into our guts and they do something to us emotionally. Why did God make that for his glory? Right? So too, God has determined the empires of man from its inception. From Adam, the one man mentioned, up to present day when Paul is preaching in Acts 17, God raises and lowers. He has appointed the people and the boundaries. Therefore, kings and princes, presidents and dictators have only borrowed sovereignty. Look at Romans 13. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It's borrowed And the sovereign God who gave it can take it away without breaking a sweat. I love it. I'm reading, if you're following the Robert Murray McShane reading plan that we promote in our weekly emails, um, you'll have read this recently with your children at night. The family reading is in Mark right now. And just the other night, we read this story of a woman who came to Jesus, and she was a Gentile. And this complicates the relationship and the request quite a bit. She came to Jesus and she said, please, Jesus. I mean, by this point, he was wildly famous. He couldn't go anywhere without massive crowds following him. And then they'd find out where he's going next and they would run. They would bring all the sick and they would lay him on the streets. And just as he would walk by, if the hem of his garment would just touch them, they'd be healed. So much so that the gospel writers came and described each and every event. And in the midst of all this, this Gentile woman comes to Jesus. He's sitting, he's teaching, and, he, and she says, my, my daughter back home, she's possessed by a demon. Can you help her, please? And there's this interesting interchange that some of you have probably read, right? Jesus says something about uh, it's not right to give the food to the dogs when the children are, are hungry. And that sounds really degrading and demeaning. There's a lot of context that we don't have time to get into, but the point is, she says, yes, but, but, but even the dogs get the crumbs. And, and he, says, he says something really fascinating to her. He says, your faith, right? Your faith has made her well. And he says, go, she's healed. Did, he, did it describe any calisthenics that Jesus did? Did he do any, whew, right? I mean, was there anything? Did he pause and go up to the top of a mountain and build a fire and... No, he's just sitting there and he just says, she's well. The next verse in the story reads that the woman went home and she found her daughter well. Jesus didn't break a sweat. And people were amazed when Jesus spoke to the demons and they were brought out of people. Come out of there. And they went, whoa, who is this guy that he can tell demons to come out? He didn't even do that. She's somewhere else. And he goes, it's done. That's the God who has set up empires. That's the God who has allowed a particular president at a particular time for a particular reason. We don't have to understand why or how it all works together to recognize that the power that he has over all things, it's infinite. So we need not fret. I forgot where I was. 
Therefore, as an extension of the general principle, Paul gives us principle reason. General principle and then principle reason. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. General principle. General reason, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Obedience then to authority is obedience to God. One last example to, uh, to highlight this particular aspect. Obedience unto authority is obedience unto God. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and some of the other apostles were arrested and in in, in, in brought into a, a synagogue of sorts. They were arrested by the Jewish religious police and they had the power to do this. They couldn't execute capital punishment technically by crucifixion. They needed the, the Roman Empire's permission. But they did have their own Jewish police force and they could arrest people and they could put people out and they could find them and they had a lot of authority, these religious police. Well, Peter and the apostles, a few of the other apostles were brought in by these Jewish religious police for the crime, quote unquote, of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just preaching. Just preaching. Nothing else. They were brought before a council and questioned and this is how the story goes. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. So put the apostles outside. We need to talk. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail like the others. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The point is this. Beware in any haste to resist an authority over you. You better do it on biblical grounds or else, like Gamaliel said, you might find yourself opposing God because God has appointed any and all authority on earth. Now, you might ask, what about wicked governments? What about the cruel dictators? Well, not a bad question, but the argument is not with me. The argument is with the scriptures. So like, take it up with Jesus, you know? What about bad governments? If you want to go stand before the throne of God and ask him that question, be my guest. I'm going to be busy on my face worshiping him, but you have at it, okay? The abuses of government do not negate the principle. The abuses of government do not negate the principle. For example, take any other institution established by God. Take marriage, take the church, take the authority of the eldership in the church. Each of these things is a good institution that comes with authority that has been instituted by God. Also, each of these institutions have been marred by the sin of man. Take marriage. Divorce, adultery, emotional and physical abuse, these all mar the beauty of God's greatest institution given to mankind. I mean, husbands and wives, is this not the greatest institution on the face of the earth? the intimacy and the love and the trust and the vulnerability. There is no one who knows you like your spouse. No one who you trust like your spouse. No one who it hurts you when they're hurt like your spouse. Ooh, what a special thing. The two shall become one. And yet, divorce and adultery and abuse, all of these things have marred that beautiful institution. The question is this. Should the abuses negate the principle? Should we throw out God's commands and wisdom about marriage and its good for life, 
for procreation, for family stability, for the societal structure because of those exceptions, those abuses? No, we wouldn't make that argument. There's too much divorce, there's too much abuse, let's just not have marriage anymore. In spite of everything we read in the text of Scripture, we would never say that. But we all too easily slip into that mindset when it comes to the governing authorities. Why is that? Why the inconsistency? Well, I think I know why. It's cooked into our national anthem. It's cooked into the red stripes on our nation's flag meant to symbolize the blood of patriots shed for our freedom. It's cooked into the songs like, I'm proud to be an American, right? We love our guns and our combustion engines. It's the American ethos, right? We kicked those red coat Brits out of here. We ain't got no king, right? Hallelujah. Wait, where's the amens? Where's the hoorahs? Come on. Hey, guys, I'm grateful to be born in the land of the free where we can shoot guns and drive pickup trucks. I do it every day. I drive my truck gladly with its V8 motor, and I don't intend to get rid of it anytime soon, okay? Every chance I get, I take my boys and my girls, too, and teach them how to shoot, man. Pop, 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 bing! That's about the ratio. <laughs> Grateful. But if we're not careful, friends, we'll mix patriotism with Christian ethic. One is supposed to inform the other, not the other way around. It's like plumbing. So long as things are running in this direction, all is well. But when things begin to go in the opposite direction, you got problems. Right? So long as the Christian ethic informs the American patriotism... We're good. When it flows in the other direction, it's a stinky mess, theologically speaking. So, we have submission as a principle, we have submission as unto God, and then thirdly, we have governmental submission as a matter of perspective. As a matter of perspective. 1 Timothy 2 begins, first of all, We're back to this verse. We've read it already once. Let's look at another portion carefully. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, remember, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, look, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of God. The truth. So the first perspective is one of gospel proclamation. Paul literally insinuates that appropriate governmental submission unto peaceable living is a gospel issue. Friends, we are here on this earth as the redeemed people of God in order that we reflect two things God's holiness and his grace to the world around us. Our lives are meant to reflect these things. God is holy. We are not like you. We do not approve of these things because God does not approve of them. It is these for which mankind is doomed. And the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ offers pardon to any who would but call on him for salvation. This is our purpose for being here, friends. As contentious agitators, we are not being gospel-minded Americans. We are being Americanized Christians. We have to be careful. The blood of Jesus was not shed for our Second Amendment rights, not for our freedom of speech, not for our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The blood of Jesus was shed to rescue sinners from the fiery consequences. If you forfeit your gospel witness, but maintain your right to bear arms, what eternal good have you accomplished? I love how Scottish pastor Ross Ross Ferguson talks about this in a very casual way. So uh, pretend like you're eavesdropping on a conversation as I read this quote to you. He says this. If how you're commentating on politics is guaranteeing a struggle to reach a certain person for Christ, you are in the wrong. 
If you're railing against a political person or party and that's what you're known for, you can forget that you'll be the one who says, hey, come to Christ. He can carry your burdens. They're not going to listen to you. It's good, right? In all things, the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ must come first. Governmental submission is a matter of perspective, friends. We're here for the gospel, okay? Secondly, let's read from Philippians 3. Paul compares those in opposition to God, to to us who have our set hope. I've I've been going for a while. My mouth is dry. In Philippians 3, 19 and 21, Paul compares those in opposition to God to us who have our hope set on him. Those in opposition to God, he says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, friends, as a matter of perspective, we must also recognize we're here for the gospel, and this is not our home. We are exiles. We are aliens. We are fugitives. We are not home. Our greatest accomplishment will not be to re-Christianize the culture like we had back in the good old days. In all honesty, The cultural Christianity accomplished by the moral majority of the 1980s led to shallow Christianity, false assurance, hollow churches, impotent preaching, and the cultural rubber band has snapped back hard, right? And so, let us keep these things in perspective. Gospel-centered, living peaceable lives praying for kings and presidents, prepare to cooperate, submit, and obey. Right up to the point, friends, that biblically we cannot, which we'll talk about next week, okay? For now, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and how in it we find everything needed for life and godliness. It's a wonderful verse because it reminds us of the overarching nature of your scriptures. Thank you for the joy of gathering together, for the gift of preserving your word. We pray now that you would receive our praises to you, the King. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.